Well, you're ready to go. This is the last session. Uh, as I said, it's kind of a boot camp. Uh, but uh, the good news is there's a nice reception after this, too, so you can have a drink. Uh, well, we've got a very distinguished panel. And uh, the topic is the future of China and the global monetary system. Uh, China's come a long way since uh, 1978 when the reforms began and is now the world's largest trading nation uh, and also the second largest economy, soon to be the largest economy. And the key question is, what's the future of the renminbi, or, or otherwise known as the yuan? Uh, first, as a global currency, and second, as a key reserve currency. Well, there's been some progress on the first front. Uh, the renminbi has been internationalized uh, to a certain extent, still small, small currency uh, internationally. Uh, but on the second front, as far as a key reserve currency, uh, it has a very long way to go because it has closed capital markets, financial repression, uh, and many state-owned uh, banks. Uh, I always say it's the SOBs lending to the SOEs, uh, state-owned banks lending to the state-owned enterprises. So they don't, they don't have any problem getting money into circulation in China. They just order people to... Uh, the banks to make loans, and uh, that's not a problem. So they have to be very careful with inflation. Well, our three distinguished panelists will discuss uh, these and related issues, um, in particularly the institutional constraints that uh, keep China from becoming a, uh, the renminbi from becoming a world reserve currency. Our first speaker, uh, Eswar Prasad, uh, who's spoken at several conferences uh, previous to this one, uh, is a Tulane uh, Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University and Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the New Century Chair in International Economics. He served as the Chief of the Financial Studies Division at the IMF and also Head of the Fund's China Division. His latest book, Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renminbi, I highly recommend it. Uh, I, in fact, I, I read it from cover to cover and reviewed it in the Cato Journal. But it's an excellent introduction to uh, the problems that China faces in making its currency a key reserve currency. Uh, Eswar is a prolific writer and has published many articles in leading journals, including the American Economic Review, the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity, and the Journal of Monetary Economics. He's often testifies before the Senate Finance Committee, the House Committee on Financial Services, and the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He's also the creator of the Brookings Financial Times World Index. Uh, he earned his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Let's welcome Prasad. Thank you, Jim, and good afternoon. This session is a perfect segue from the last session, where you were talking about the potential ending of cash, because it turns out the beginning of paper currency actually goes back to the seventh century in China, in the Tang Dynasty, which is when the first paper currency actually appeared. It was called Feiqian, or flying money, because the notion at the time that rather than carrying big hunks of commodities or precious metals, you could actually use these pieces of paper 
which were certificates of deposit, meant that they could, in principle, practically fly away. Um, in the Song Dynasty that succeeded that, paper currency came and went. But then China had yet another innovation, which was legal tender. We know about this from the writings of a famous itinerant, Marco Polo, who tells us that he visited the court of the Grand Khan, Kublai Khan, the, son of Genghis, the grandson of Genghis Khan. Um, and Marco Polo was astonished because he said that throughout the realm of the Grand Khan, people accept the emperor's insignia, which was imprinted on mulberry bark, which is what paper was made of at the time, and people without question accepted throughout the land. So here was China's second innovation, legal tender in the form of a fiat currency. So how come, um, without any backing by commodities or precious metals, uh, Kublai Khan could get his currency to be uh, accepted around his domain? As Marco Polo tells us, it was very simple. Kublai Khan passed a decree that anybody who would not accept his currency with his insignia would be put to death. <laughs> These days, I believe central bankers have slightly subtler methods of getting the fiat currency to be accepted as legal tender. But then China had further innovations. They had among the first hyperinflations, because as you can imagine, the temptation to print unbacked paper currency proved much too difficult to resist. But that's not the end of the innovations. It turns out that China had one of the first currency wars. Um, in, the 1930s, in the 1920s and 1930s, the Kuomintang had begun to take control of much of China. The Japanese, meanwhile, had started their incursion into Manchuria. And both parties recognized that currency domination meant power. So the Kuomintang had set up their own central bank after experiencing some hyperinflationary episodes of their own. And then there was this reform called the Fabi reform in 1935. The Fabi was a new currency that was backed by the US dollars and uh, pound sterling, the two key global reserve currencies at the time. The Japanese set up their own central bank, the Central Bank of China. Both of these banks set up branches in Shanghai, which was an important financial center even at that time. So the Kuomintang-led central bank essentially dynamited the branch of the um, uh, Wang Jingwei government, which is a puppet government in Nanjing set up by the uh, um, Japanese government. That uh, central bank was dynamited. And in return, the Japanese pulled some employees out of the Kuomintang central bank branch and executed them on the street. So if you think you're seeing violent currency wars these days, it was much more vicious back then. <laughs> so. After these innovations, of course, the currency we've all come to know and love, the renminbi, came into being in 1948, in late 1948, a few months before the People's Republic of China formally came into being, which was in October of 1949. The currency then went through a variety of evolutions. And in fact, even looking at the paper currency, um, the yuan that we love, the yuan is basically the unit of account of the renminbi. Um, what is interesting is that the image that we all are used to seeing on every yuan note right now, which is the full-face frontal profile of Mao, did not exist until the fifth series of banknotes. It turns out in the very first series of banknotes, um, Mao, and I have some archival material on this um, uh, that is in this book that Jim mentioned. Um, so the then central bank governor, Li Nanshen, goes and uh, talks to Mao and says, you are the father of the nation. You are the father of the Communist Party. Your image should be on the note. And Mao says, no, I am just a member of the party. This is the people's money, the renminbi. 
my image should not be on it. It's only in the fourth image, uh, fourth series of banknotes issued in 1987 that his image appears along with three other leaders. But then in 1999, at the 50th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, the fifth series of banknotes, which exists to this day, was issued. And at the time, it turns out the biggest concern that existed for the uh, currency printing authorities, which was exactly the same concern that those in the uh, Tang Dynasty and the Song Dynasty had when they were printing paper currency, the concern about counterfeiting. So here again, I dug up some, well, some students of mine dug up this interesting archival material about discussions at the Currency Printing Bureau where they say, how can we reduce counterfeiting? So they say, maybe we need images of some natural landmark or some leader like Confucius, Li Bai, Li Shijian, whom everybody will recognize. And they decide that the only image that every person illiterate, literate, rural, urban will recognize is that of Mao, which is why now we have on every Yuan banknote the image of Mao. Turns out, not always the case. This brings us to more recent history, and of course it is only in the last decade or so that the renminbi has really come into its own as a global currency. It's worth thinking about where the renminbi is on its path to becoming a true global currency. We've all heard this term internationalization, and when you hear a complex polysyllabic word like that, you of course stop, take a deep breath, and wonder what it actually means to different people. So I'm a professor and I think about concepts first. When I think about internationalization, I think it's worth first thinking about one role that Jim alluded to, which is that of an international currency, which I define as a currency that is used in international trade um, and uh, finance transactions for settlement purposes. This is an area in which the renminbi has actually made significant progress. It turns out that now about 2% of global transactions are settled in RMB. This may not seem like a very large amount, but remember, this is for a currency that had basically a 0% share of global transactions settled in uh, terms of that currency um, barely uh, six or seven years ago. So the trajectory looks very sharp if you look at the use of the RMB in settlement of uh, trade and financial transactions, the amount of RMB denominated bonds issued outside uh, China. If you look at uh, um, RMB deposits outside China, in all of these, the trajectory is very impressive looking, but over the last two years, that trajectory has flattened out. But I think China is on its way to having its currency becoming a serious international currency because it is now the largest trading nation in the world. It is uh, the second largest economy in the world. And it is playing a very big role in the economic lives of many other nations around the world. So the notion of using the RMB for cross-border transaction settlement, I think, is one that will gain more traction, either as a matter of policy, if the Chinese government pushes it more aggressively, or as a matter of markets determining it, because um, I think there is good reason to use the RMB, and especially as the cost of trading in RMB decline, if China were to continue with deepening its financial markets, certainly it would be easier to trade in RMB. So I think the RMB certainly is not going to make the sort of linear progress that we saw in the first three or four years after it started becoming a major international currency, but it's on its way. Now, it's also important to keep in mind the landscape. I spoke about China accounting for about 2% of global uh, uh, financial settlement uh, of various transactions. 
doesn't seem like an impressive number, but China is now, um, depending on which month you look at the numbers, either in the fifth or sixth position, because this is still uh, a market that is largely dominated by the big currencies, in particular the US dollar and then the other four or five major currencies. So China has already ascended to that status where it is playing a significant role, and I think that will continue. Then there is a notion of a reserve currency, which of course is a currency that is held um, by for, uh, foreign central banks as part of their foreign exchange reserve portfolios, essentially their rainy day funds. Now, there are typically some attributes that the currency needs to fulfill before it becomes a reserve currency. These are not laws handed down um, by uh, divine forces, but this is what tends to be true of most reserve currencies. You need to have size. Um, and China, like I said, is a very large economy, no matter which way you look at it. So it certainly has a size. You need typically good macroeconomic policies. And who's to say that if you look at things like inflation, the uh, government deficit, the debt levels, that China looks any worse than the advanced economies. Um, but then you also need three other criteria that are critical. One is an open capital account, the free flow of capital across a nation's borders, a market-determined exchange rate, and deep financial markets. You need to have financial instruments that foreign investors can easily acquire and easily move into and out of. China does not meet these three attributes yet. Certainly it has made progress. Over the last decade, China has opened up its capital account to both inflows and outflows. And over the last two years, there's certainly been uh, some degree of volatility, to put it mildly, in terms of what's happening with capital account opening. But things are progressing in the right direction. And in its own inimitable one step forward, two steps <coughs> sideways way, China is gradually moving towards a more market determined exchange rate. And it is developing its financial markets. Certainly, um, China's equity markets remain beset by all sort of institutional problems. Um, China is trying to develop its fixed income markets. And fairly recently, earlier this year, it threw open the door uh, to its uh, government and corporate bond markets to foreign investors, although they're not quite uh, beating down the doors yet. So in all of these areas, there is progress. But here is the remarkable thing. Even though China does not meet these traditional prerequisites of a reserve currency, it has become a reserve currency. In de jure terms, it has become a reserve currency because the IMF has anointed it so. In November of 2016, um, the um, IMF included the renminbi in this elite basket of reserve currencies that now form the IMF's uh, special drawing rights, the artificial currency that exists on the books of the IMF. Um, until fairly recently, uh, it was only the US dollar, uh, the Japanese yen, the British pound sterling, and the euro that were part of the, uh, that constituted the SDR basket. Now, of course, the fact that the IMF has anointed the renminbi as a reserve currency does not by itself make it one. What matters is what the markets say, what foreign central banks say. And here it turns out that the renminbi has in fact also become a de facto reserve currency. There are central banks around the world, uh, countries like Chile and Brazil and Latin America, many um, European economies like Austria and even the United Kingdom, plus, of course, a whole range of uh, um, economies in um, Africa, such as Nigeria and South Africa, and, uh, of course, Asia. Uh, one can think about Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan, all of which have indicated they already hold 
or plan to hold a small portion of their reserve portfolios in renminbi-denominated assets. One other sign of the confidence in the RMB is the fact that there are 38 central banks around the world, um, both from advanced economies and emerging markets, um, that have now signed bilateral local currency swap arrangements with the People's Bank of China, giving them access to RMB liquidity. Now, you put together all these swap arrangements, they add up to about half a trillion dollars. Once upon a time, a billion used to be a lot. Once upon a time, a trillion used to be a lot of money, but half a trillion is still not um, that little money, but it's not a huge amount of money in international finance. But what is important is that there are countries that seem to want RMB liquidity. The question then becomes, if the renminbi does not meet the prerequisites of a um, reserve currency and has already become a reserve currency, perhaps when it does meet the prerequisites, it is taking over. And this is a narrative that has become much less compelling in the last two years, given the woes that China's economy was facing. But it looks like certainly this economy could um, be the, um, the home of a currency that starts to rival the dollar. This is where I think it's important to introduce an additional concept, which traditionally did not matter as much in terms of the distinction from a plain vanilla reserve currency. And that's one of a safe haven currency. I think the renminbi requires us to make this distinction. So what is a safe haven currency? A safe haven currency is not just a plain vanilla reserve currency, but one that investors are willing to turn to in moments of financial turmoil. It's, an, uh, it's a currency that inspires the trust, not just of domestic, but also foreign investors. So what are these elements that inspire trust? One might argue that it's more a technical matter that you need deep and liquid financial markets so that when you want to uh, acquire assets or when you more importantly want to dispose of those assets, you can do it uh, without stirring those markets and have a reasonable expectation that you can take the money out. But what are the elements of the institutional framework that are necessary to support a safe haven currency? I would argue they are an open and transparent democratic system of government because that creates institutionalized checks and balances that economic policy will not go awry. You also need the rule of law and you also need um, trusted public institutions, in particular a central bank uh, like the Federal Reserve that foreign investors have trust in to maintain the value of the currency. If you look around the landscape of reserve currencies, if you think about not just the dollar, but the euro, the Japanese yen, even the Canadian dollar, the British pound sterling, all of these currencies typically um, are from countries that had this institutional framework. In the case of China, I think President Xi Jinping has made his intentions absolutely clear that he is going to move forward on economic and financial market reforms, but broader political legal institutional reforms are off the table. So I think the prognosis for the renminbi is really going to be um, uh, circumscribed by uh, the institutional framework that China is going to have to support the currency. My view is that almost certainly China is going to move forward again in its very haphazard, very gradual way with financial market development, which I think President Xi Jinping sees as necessary to do what he wants on the economic front, not only maintain decent growth, but also make it more balanced uh, spatially and in many other respects. Um, and in addition, um, I think capital account opening will progress, partly as a matter of something that the market wants, because China 
uh, is becoming a major player in global finance. Its corporations are becoming major players in the world. So you need to support that. Um, and in addition, I think the reality is that China needs uh, a better monetary policy framework, which requires a more market-determined exchange rate. So none of this is going to happen overnight, but I think it is going to happen. But having said that, I think the best case scenario for the renminbi if financial and economic reforms continue, which I think, um, again, or at least I hope they will continue, is that we will see the renminbi rise uh, to become a significant reserve currency, by which I mean it could well account for about 5 to 10% of global foreign exchange reserves. But it's important to think about what this means in the uh, global landscape of currencies. We've seen the renminbi already accounting by the IMF's count for about 2% of global foreign exchange reserve holdings. Uh, now that the RNMB is part of the SDR basket, uh, the weight in the SDR basket of the RNMB is about 10.6%. So where are all these shares coming out? The interesting thing is that the dollar has not even been nicked in terms of its share. If you look at the share of the dollar in the SDR basket, if you look at the dollar share of global allocated reserves, its share has basically not changed. If anything, it's slightly increased um, over the last decade since the global financial crisis. Much of that share is coming out of the euro, some of it from the Japanese yen and the British pound sterling. So what I think we are likely to see is the renminbi creating a very significant reordering of the second tier of currencies um, below the uh, dollar. And um, I'm sticking my neck out by putting the euro in that second tier right now. But I think the notion of the euro becoming a serious challenger to the dollar uh, certainly is uh, um, on the back burner for, I think, a long time to come. So I think the best case scenario for the RMB, and I think perhaps a realistic uh, scenario, is one where the renminbi becomes a significant reserve currency. But whether it's going to uh, challenge the dollar in any significant way, whether it's ever going to earn the trust of foreign investors by becoming a safe haven currency, to those questions, my answer at least on the pre present trajectory of the economy and in terms of institutional changes is a resounding no. So my sense is that ultimately the uh, renminbi will become a significant international currency, uh, a fairly significant reserve currency, but is it really going to uh, do anything more than marginally erode the dollar's dominance? Is it going to rival the dollar in any significant way? My answer to that, again, is a resounding no. But still, that uh, leaves the renminbi uh, in an interesting position. And I think over the next decade or two, it's going to be a wild and interesting ride. So hang on, strap on your belts, and enjoy the ride. Thank you. Thanks very much, Eswar. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Charles Calmiris, who many of you know. Uh, he's a Henry Coffin Professor of Financial Institutions at Columbia Business School, and also a professor at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. He's also a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee. And he served on the US Congress's International Financial Institution Advisory Commission better known as the Meltzer Commission. And he's also served on the Federal Reserve System's Centennial Advisory Committee. His most recent book is called Fragile by Design, uh, The Political Origins of Banking Crises and Scarce Credit, co-authored with Stephen Haber, uh, which was named one of the best economics books by the Financial Times. Uh, 
Calamiris received a BA in economics from Yale and his PhD in economics from Stanford University. Let's welcome Shirley. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to help celebrate the 35th anniversary of this conference and the successes of the conference over the years. And as everyone's been saying today, and I can't help but echo it, uh, that's largely due to the leadership that you've uh, demonstrated here, Jim. So congratulations. And it's also a pleasure to be on this panel with two friends of mine who I've known for a long time uh, and who I really regard as uh, much more uh, legitimate uh, experts on this topic than I am. In fact, when I edited a book about China's uh, financial system oh, about a decade ago, I commissioned Eswar to write the chapter about exchange rate issues. So uh, obviously, I knew what I was doing, uh, but, <clears throat> but, but uh, mainly because I listened to him. And uh, similarly, uh, I've been following David's career. And probably, I'm guessing no one in this room has probably spent more time as an economist in China than you have. Several years, right? Right. So uh, there, I have two experts, and so what have I got to, what, what am I going to do? Uh, basically change the topic. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to change the topic. But I'm going to take advantage of a broader, uh, raising a broader question that I think is also of important topical interest. And that is, how can we use the uh, understanding of what's going on in the Chinese currency as a window into uh, broader questions of the geopolitical competition between the United States and China? And of course, if you're following, as I know a lot of you are following, a recent, uh, the, the president's recent visit to Asia and particularly to China, you, if you're paying close attention, as is often the case with President Trump, you get very strongly mixed signals. So for example, on the one hand, it looks like he's flattering uh, Mr. Xi a great deal and uh, being very, always talking about what a great leader he is and all the rest of it. On the other hand, there is a narrative that you could read that the Trump team has figured out that there's something called being quietly tough. And that doesn't come naturally, the first part especially, but being quietly tough. And one thing that, that some people have noticed is that this concession, which uh, Eswar alluded to, of the uh, granting new entry in the financial sector, according to reports, is not something that was solicited by the Americans, but something that the Chinese sort of offered. So many people have been speculating that maybe the, the Trump team is feeling that they have a little bit more bargaining power than uh, they, some of the uh, flattering words might suggest. So I want to use this currency as a window, as I said, to see what we think about the current struggle between China and the US geopolitically. And I'll tell you my conclusion in advance, which is that I think there's a pretty decent case to make that China is in a newly vulnerable position relative to the rest of the world. And that that could mean that China's in a position where the US has more bargaining power than it has in the past. <clears throat> so I, I want to start by talking a little bit about uh, how quickly, and I'm very glad to see it, how quickly the narrative about China as a currency manipulator has changed. If you remember, when President Trump took office, there was a lot of discussion about the possibility that he might name China as a currency manipulator. But almost immediately after he took office, 
he backed away from that. And I think that was a very wise thing to do because I don't think that you can credibly uh, call China a long-term currency manipulator or claim that the trade surplus or some of the other bigger issues are attributable to what anyone would call currency manipulation. So let me explain why. First of all, it couldn't possibly be. There's probably no proposition in which macroeconomists agree more than the proposition of monetary neutrality. The idea that a country could, suppose that a country just fixed an exchange rate, a nominal exchange rate, and kept it there forever. And suppose that it picked an exchange rate that was not right, that it was too depreciated initially. Could that create 20 years or 30 years of trade surpluses? Well, of course not, because that's a nominal intervention, a nominal variable. And so nominal exchange rates can't cause persistent anything real, right? A constant nominal exchange rate. So from a standpoint of just basic economic theory, the idea that China's success in trade had something to do with a fixed exchange rate is nonsense. But factually, it's even more nonsensical when you realize, when you look at what the nominal exchange rate has done and what the real exchange rate has done over that time. So it didn't just fix its exchange rate. It's actually, over the period 1995 to 2014, it appreciated its exchange rate about 26%. But the real exchange rate, adjusting for differences in price indices between the two countries, appreciated 53%. So did uh, China manage to pull off some uh, miracle of fixing an exchange rate and causing 20 years or of uh, surpluses? Of course not. And in fact, that's why the exchange rate appreciated in real terms uh, during this period. <clears throat> that is, what that's telling you is that there was something going on in the Chinese economy that was driving that uh, economic success. And what was that? It was productivity growth. So at the beginning of the opening of China in 1978, its total factor productivity was roughly 8% of the United States. Today, according to estimates I've been looking at, it's about three times that. In other words, China has experienced what the Balasa samuelson herod model would tell us should have produced a real exchange rate appreciation, relative productivity growth in the tradable goods sector. And that accounts for its real exchange rate appreciation pretty well. But it's useful to point to that because it also tells us a little bit about what's likely to be happening in the exchange rate going forward. Now, there are two things that drive the nominal exchange rate. One of them is potentially productivity growth because it drives the real exchange rate, but also the nominal exchange rate holding constant productivity growth and holding constant the real exchange rate is driven by monetary policy. Well, more generally, aggregate demand. And so if we wanted to have a view about the renminbi going forward, we first have to take stock of what's happening on the real exchange rate side, and then secondly, what's happening on the monetary policy side. So I would say that the first important fact is that China's experiencing a growth slowdown, driven by a slowdown in productivity growth, and that that's going to be quite relevant, it already is quite relevant, for thinking that its currency might not continue to strengthen against the dollar long term on a real exchange rate basis. Furthermore, 
as China has faced that uh, growth slowdown, which I think is an inevitable result of diminishing returns. That is, look, if you are a dirt poor country in 1978, and you decide to start letting people participate in the market, you're going to get huge marginal product of capital. So initially, investments are earning 25, 30% in China because there's, you're starting from nothing. But after 30 years or so, it isn't so easy to be making those kinds of profits. You have to have a normal financial system to allocate capital efficiently to make sure that you can sustain that growth, sustain the absorption of labor into your economy, and that's where China's running into problems. Now, this isn't news to them. They witnessed the Asian crisis in the 1990s, and they correctly understood it, as economists who were following it understood it at the time, as precisely reflecting this problem. So to remind you what Ann Krieger's uh, research about uh, Korea taught, taught us, South Korea, that in the 1980s and the 1990s, Korea was experiencing a slowdown uh, in productivity growth. Um, and how did the Chables respond to that? Through their connections with the government, basically they responded to that by not shrinking their production, but instead levering up. They did it with international bonds that investors understood were effectively guaranteed by the government, and with bank loans domestically that people understood were guaranteed by the government. And that um, papering over the problem led to an unsustainable exchange rate, an overvalued exchange rate, based on a productivity growth problem that it had undermined and caused the real exchange rate to need to depreciate. Even though the nominal exchange rate, if you weren't looking at it, uh, if you looked at it from a sort of PPP basis, you wouldn't have thought Korea had a problem. The problem was productivity growth relative to the US had not kept up. The Chinese uh, in 2000, watching East Asia collapse, thought that they learned two important lessons. One of them was that you needed to actually not let this happen to your economy. And the other one was it might be convenient sometimes to have capital controls, of course, because um, that seemed to be part of the problem that was shaping the Asian crisis. That is, the being open to people speculating against your currency once they realized these deep fundamental problems. And so since then, what you've seen is a very strange sort of drama unfolding in China, which is on the one hand, the Chinese government saying, really since the late 1990s, we understand we need fundamental financial system reform. We need to have an efficient financial system. They'll say it over and over and over again. But at the same time, although they say they're going to relax capital controls and they say they want to move toward a more market-based exchange rate, they, they don't seem to be moving really in that direction. And that reflects a fundamental inconsistency between those two objectives. That inconsistency was first noted by, uh, in, to my knowledge anyway, by a book that Mingxin Pei wrote in, I think it was 2006, called China's Trapped Transition. And the, the title tells you a lot. And his, his point, as I, I'll paraphrase his point in the book as I read it is, to, you can't both have autocratic control over the economy to allocate resources where you want for political reasons and have a financial system that does that. <laughs> it's one task. You can't have two different ways of doing it at the same time. And so 
what China has done is sort of stumbled back and forth between opening, but then finding, well, we need to prop up certain sectors. We need to prop up to keep our short-term growth going. So we need to control the financial system. We, and these two things are at war with each other. And maintaining capital controls is essential to prevent uh, foreigners from speculating against the long-term fundamental inconsistency. So the initial problem, of course, which started a long time ago, let's say more than a decade ago, was the growth slowdown appearance. How did the Chinese government respond to that problem? They created a second problem called the debt over issuance. So that in order to deal with the short-term growth slowdown, China has permitted or engineered huge debt growth, which is guaranteed either explicitly or implicitly by the government, now equal to about two and a half times GDP. Most market observers are looking at this and saying, the, obviously, the RMB, for nominal reasons, is going to have to undergo a major depreciation going forward. And I think that is sound analysis. Why hasn't it already happened? Because of capital controls. Now, the, the Chinese government did establish an offshore market for the RMB, but it's a market that they control by deciding how much supply of currency is allowed to be traded in that market. And whenever the short positions in that market start to build up, which could be very embarrassing to the government, what do they do? They burn the shorts by temporarily withdrawing supply of currency from that market in order to dissuade people from using that market to speculate. So I think that there is a huge hidden problem of a market perception, which I think is correct, that the uh, yuan is going to depreciate dramatically. Now, when this happens, it's not going to produce a sort of Asian-style or Mexican-style international uh, exchange rate crisis, because this debt is denominated in local currency. It's just going to produce, as the path of least resistance, a very large inflation. So when I look at this situation, the fact that this political inconsistency prevents the relaxing of capital controls and the likely future path of inflation, I don't see long-term much of a future for the Chinese currency, certainly not as what Eswar described as a safe haven. And I would say I'm not sure how much of a reserve currency either. I think that those swap lines are probably best understood as just the fact that those countries you mentioned do a lot of trade with China. And so they have to have currency covering their ability to settle the trade. Um, so more generally, you know, my view is that this growth slowdown, this debt overhang, and this sort of political inconsistency, they've, and they're showing themselves very recently in the crackdown that Mr. Xi has engineered. I think some people look at him and say, oh, that shows just how invincible China is. I look at it and say, no, it shows how weak China is. Uh, crony autocratic regimes have crackdowns when rents are getting smaller, and they have to divide those rents among a smaller group of people. And I think that's a good way to think about this current situation in China as a long-term indicator of problems. And so I think from that standpoint, the Trump administration should uh, view the Chinese reliance on exports as never greater, and that the idea that there might be uh, a bargain that would cause a disruption to those exports would be of great consequence for China. And that gives 
the American team a lot of bargaining power in the short run. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Um, one thing you could point out with respect to China is uh, China obviously does not have a free market in ideas, uh, as pointed out by many people, including uh, Ronald Coase and uh, Ning Wang. And China can never become a truly global financial center unless it has a free market in ideas. And Xi Jinping has been cracking down on that market substantially, closing internet sites at uh, think tanks and so on. So uh, Charlie makes some very good points there. Our final speaker is uh, David Dollar, and he has the perfect name for an economist. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking maybe we should go into business together, Dollar and Dorn. You know, we could have a hedge fund or something. Uh, David is a senior fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution. And from 2009 to 2013, he was the US Treasury's economic and financial uh, emissary to China based in Beijing. Uh, prior to that, uh, David worked for 20 years for the World Bank, serving as country director for China and Mongolia. And luckily, he was based in Beijing. Uh, Dollar also worked in the World Bank's research department. His publications focus on economic reform in China, globalization, and economic growth. Uh, he has taught economics at UCLA during which time he spent a semester in Beijing at the Graduate School of Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in uh, 1986. David received his PhD in economics from New York University and a BA in Chinese history and language from Dartmouth College. It's a pleasure to welcome David. Uh, thank you, Jim. It's a great pleasure to be here. And you also get my congratulations for organizing this interesting day. Uh, I correctly anticipated that Eshwar and Charlie would say a lot of relevant things, and we're getting to the end of the day. So I'm going to try to be brief and to supplement some of the things that they said. Uh, you know, as Jim pointed out in his introduction, China is now the largest trading nation. It's the second largest economy in the world. It doesn't have to do very well to become the largest economy in the world within about 10 years. So it makes sense that its currency will be playing a more important role in the world in the global monetary system. China's central bank governor, Zhou Xiaochuan, back in 2009, he wrote an article which basically started the direct promotion of the Chinese currency as an international currency. And you know, after that article was written, we went through this period which Eshwar characterized where you know, China, by many measures, its currency's role in the world was growing very quickly, you know, its share of Trade settlement, for example, went from about zero to two and a half percent in about three years. But as Eshwar said, that actually came to an end. It didn't just stabilize, but China's share of settlement actually declined a little bit over the next couple of years. It's now at about two percent. Now, I think it's not really a surprise that, that China's kind of run into this bottleneck, because I think it faces both long-term and short-term impediments to having its currency become a major international currency, ultimately what Eshwar was calling a haven currency. So what I'd like to do is briefly cover the long-term impediments and then the short-term impediments, and also what are the prospects for China addressing these impediments. So let me start with the long-term impediments. You know, China faces very serious institutional weaknesses. And in many ways, China's an interesting paradox. You know, it's grown, grown well for 40 years, Right? But I think 
Most of us would look at China and say that it has quite poor economic institutions. And I think one way to understand this is if you go back to the Mao era, China had extraordinarily poor economic institutions and policies, and it made some substantial steps forward starting in 1978 with the household responsibility system returning farming to a family farm basis, allowing foreign investment, even 100% foreign investment in some sectors, and starting to legalize the domestic private sector. So I see China taking some big steps forward in terms of basic property rights and rule of law, not to a very good situation, but to a somewhat mediocre situation. Now, these things are hard to measure, you know, but we have world governance indicators with cross-country metrics on property rights rule of law. And it's interesting, if you go back to the 90s, you know, China was at about the 45th percentile among countries in terms of property rights rule of law. At a time was at, when it was at about the 20th percentile in terms of per capita income. So we could say China had pretty good economic institutions for its level of income. And that's a period when it really started to grow rapidly. It benefited a lot from an export orientation and from foreign investment. That foreign investment was private. So a lot of the expanding part of the economy was private sector. And this is the period where China had very rapid productivity growth. And that export-oriented model allowed that private sector to play a bigger and bigger role in the economy. Now, as I said, it's hard to measure these things. But if you scroll ahead 20 years, and you look at these indices of property rights and rule of law, China, interestingly, is exactly where it was in the mid-1990s. Okay, so it's not measured to have shown any progress. That's probably a slight exaggeration, but having lived there for nine years, it's fair to say that they do not have very good property rights rule of law. But now they're at the 60th percentile, beyond the 60th percentile in terms of per capita income. So now China has rather poor institutions given its level of development. So I think that looking ahead, you know, thinking about the kind of things that international investors are going to be looking for, you, you lack basic property rights rule of law, and that's a problem for China. Hasn't made progress. And I think, it, you know, sitting in this building, people aren't going to be surprised that this is probably related to the political system. We have some examples of authoritarian countries that make some progress with economic reform up to a certain stage. But in my judgment, nobody's really made it to excellent economic institutions without open democratic political system. So China may very well be running into a problem. Certainly, we see a stall in its economic institutional development. Probably that's related to their political development. Now, it's interesting. Uh, my different topics are interrelated. It's kind of hard to keep them all separate. I'm going to talk a little bit at the end of this recent Chinese political event, the 19th Party Congress. But let me mention here that in his big three and a half hour speech to open this, Xi Jinping did mention you know, looking at China as a model that the rest of the world can copy. And I think until recently, we actually had not heard this kind of language, not, not at least since the era of Mao. But in the reform era, we've not heard this kind of talk. But now China's thinking of itself as, as something of a model uh, in different ways for the rest of the world. So I think. In terms of really looking far down the road, you know, is, is the Chinese currency going to become a major reserve or safe haven currency? I think the institutional problems are fundamental, and we don't really see much progress in those. Now, let me shift gear and talk a little bit about the more short-term impediments, kind of things uh, Eshwar also enumerated, 
about the need for an open capital account, flexible exchange rate, financial stability, you know, if, if you're going to uh, become a major uh, currency in the world. And you know, before the global financial crisis, China was growing very much based on exports, you know, had a successful model. But the global financial crisis was a big shock. China's exports declined by a third within a few months, 20 million people thrown out of work. I was living there at the time. It was really a very extraordinary shock. And China responded with a big stimulus, which was reasonable. But the stimulus was aimed almost completely at investment. The main vehicle was credit-sponsored local government investment. Local governments were actually not allowed to borrow, but they found a workaround that they set up infrastructure companies. Those local companies, state-owned, could borrow and finance infrastructure. And my, make a long story short, I think this helped them sustain growth, but they've now seriously overdone this in terms of sustaining this kind of credit-fueled stimulus for a number of years. Chinese economist friend of mine not too long ago was traveling in the West, and the local government was very proud to show him a new bridge. And you've heard about the bridge to nowhere. This was a bridge over nothing. You know, so my friend pointed out, nice bridge, but it's over nothing. And they said, don't worry, the five-year plan includes a river. <laughs> so you know, first we build the bridge, and we'll eventually get around to living in a river. This is out by the Gobi Desert, so I don't think they were actually going to build a river. But you know, basically, you, you, having followed this sort of extraordinary export-oriented, private sector-led period, they've now had, you know, what, eight-plus years of a largely credit-stimulated, government-driven investment program. Local government investment is critical. There's more. They also loosened up uh, housing, you know, regulation of the housing market and housing mortgages. Uh, that's actually been quite a positive thing to some extent. Uh, both of those tended to stimulate heavy manufacturing industries like steel and cement that provide inputs into construction. And so you had this big construction boom fueled by debt, and now we have lots of evidence of excess capacity in real estate, in local government, an example of the bridge that goes over nothing, uh, and definitely in manufacturing where we see very serious overcapacity. Now, productivity has really slowed down, and I think this is not unrelated. You know, what Charlie was talking about, this is not unrelated to what I'm talking about, is this was a more state-driven process, uh, and, um, you know, the more, some of the more private sector heavy sectors of the Chinese economy have just not been growing that quickly for a while. I guess if I were going to have one slight difference with, with Charlie, they've become much less export dependent in general. So the value added in their exports to the U.S. has declined to 3% of their GDP. So we can argue about whether 3% is a big number or a small number, but exports are a much smaller part of their, their economy. Uh, and that's one reason why their total factor productivity growth has slowed down. Now, before the global financial crisis, China was remarkable in that you know, measures of leverage were quite stable. You know, for example, the, the credit to the non-financial private sector relative to GDP, that was very stable for quite a few years, indicating that credit to that sector was growing at the same rate as nominal GDP. Since the global financial crisis, during the stimulus period I'm talking about, credit's been growing three times as fast as nominal GDP. And basically, that measure of, of debt to GDP for that non-financial private sector, it's gone from 100% of GDP 
to 200% of GDP in a relatively short period of time. And this is a pattern we've seen previously in countries like Thailand and Spain that eventually had financial crises. Now, this credit, I think, has also changed the exchange rate dynamics. And Charlie talked a little bit about this as well. For a long time, China had what they called dual surpluses. You know, they, in the mid-2000s, they had a very significant current account surplus that got up above 10% of GDP. But they also had net capital inflow. There were enough sectors open to direct foreign investment, enough controls on outward flows that they had pretty significant net inflow of capital. And this was a period where they accumulated reserves, which eventually got up to $4 trillion. And they did allow some exchange rate appreciation, which yeah. nominally was fairly significant. And then this whole monetary stimulus, that actually generated enough inflation so that the real appreciation was even greater. But now what's happened is, you know, partly as a result of this real appreciation of the currency, is their current account deficit has come down quite significantly to under 2% of GDP. And then I think their exchange rate dynamics really changed very dramatically around 2014. You know, as their current account surplus was coming down, they'd been managing the currency against the dollar, allowing a little bit of appreciation in nominal terms, but very gradual, very typically Chinese. Uh, and then, and this was an era when the dollar on average was pretty stable or a small downward tendency. And then in 2014, you started to get the appreciation of the US dollar. And so China managing against the dollar, they got pulled up, their trade-weighted exchange rate, which it had been appreciating, but it appreciated very substantially uh, in the second half of 2014 into 2015. And this kind of started to alarm them that this effective exchange rate was too much. So in the middle of 2015, you know, they tried to convince the market that they were changing their system, that they were going to start managing with respect to a basket, uh, and that they were going, and then they had what they advertised as a mini devaluation, okay? But basically, they communicated it poorly, and the market reaction was they didn't know what this was, but it certainly seemed like it might be this kind of large uh, depreciation, the kind that, that Charlie was talking about. Uh, and so that, right around that moment, you see a very clear reversal in capital flows for China. So that so-called dual surplus I mentioned, the capital flow part of that went away. And starting in 2015, you got very serious net outflows of capital from China. And that was a period where they used up about a trillion dollars of reserves in order to prevent the currency from appreciating too quickly. And they also tightened up on their capital controls. Now, I actually think they, they're in a difficult situation that they've created for themselves. So it's, it's easy to say, you know, just free up the exchange rate. Uh, I think they missed an opportunity to introduce flexibility in the good time when the currency was going up and could have gone up a lot more. They didn't allow that. I think if they stopped intervening at all right now, you'd get a very serious depreciation. Because it's mostly Chinese people, by the way. You always blame the foreign investors, but it's mostly Chinese people moving money out. They don't have any idea where this exchange rate could go because they don't have experience with the flexible exchange rate. And the communication strategy has not been that effective. So I think there's a risk that it could depreciate a large way. And they still have a current account surplus. It's small, small as a share of GDP, about 2% of GDP, but it's still more than $200 billion. And certainly, the United States government's going to be unhappy 
if the Chinese just stop intervening. You can say, well, you managed it on the way up. Now, why do you suddenly get out of the way on the way down? So I think they've created a difficult situation that doesn't have any easy solution. But to come back to our topic, I think you can see that in the short run, very hard for it to become a major international currency when they've tightened the capital controls and they're managing the exchange rate very tightly and they have this very big debt overhang with a risk of a financial crisis. They've got a lot of buffers that work against the financial crisis, but those buffers include uh, capital controls, state ownership of the banks, a lot of things that are, that are against their long-run reform interests. So let me just then briefly take a third topic, but use it as kind of a way of wrapping up. Um, you know, what's going to happen with Chinese policy going from here? Are they going to address these long-term and short-term impediments? We've just had this 19th Party Congress. The media story coming out of it is that Xi Jinping is the most powerful leader since Mao. He's written into the Constitution. He's got his second five-year term as, as president of the country and chairman of the Communist Party. I think some of that media hype is exaggerated. Uh, he's certainly powerful, but there are other power blocks in China. This top group, the Standing Committee, the Politburo, it's actually pretty balanced among three main factions in China. And the factions don't differ on policy. So which faction's in charge, I don't think makes much difference. In my view, having this relatively balanced Standing Committee, that creates not a bad foundation for moving ahead on some of these issues. I'm cautiously optimistic that they're worried enough about the debt overhang and the leverage Earlier in the year, Xi Jinping said that financial stability was a national security issue. I actually think that's intelligent to recognize that. So some of the personnel moves, people moving up uh, who are likely to end up in important positions when they reconstitute the government, I'm cautiously optimistic they will rein in credit and try to stabilize the leverage in the economy because of the risks. Sounds easy, but of course, if they do that, you will start to see state enterprises, some state enterprises, some local governments that are effectively bankrupt, and then they'll have to let the enterprises exit, and they'll have to bail out the local government. So it'll be political test to see if they can follow through. Then there's a whole micro side of the agenda. You know, I emphasize that they'd opened up many sectors to foreign investment, export-oriented sectors. A lot of sectors of that economy are closed, particularly the more consumption-oriented and domestic-oriented. Service sectors like financial services, telecom, logistics, most of the financial sectors, sorry, service sectors are relatively closed and dominated by Chinese, big Chinese state enterprises. And so the shift from exports toward domestic consumption is implicitly shifting resources into sectors that are uncompetitive and state dominated. They would benefit a lot from opening up those sectors. We saw a little bit of progress. They opened up investment banking and insurance. They announced that after President Trump was in China. So I think they, President Xi was very clear they're going to reform on their own timetable according to their own roadmap. I wouldn't be wildly optimistic, but I think we might see some progress in opening up more of these sectors. Uh, so you know, a little bit cautiously optimistic they're going to start addressing some of these issues. But I think the basic, my basic message is the challenges between where they are and being a really important international currency, it's going to take them a long time, if ever, to reach deal with those. So 
I'm happy to be named after the US currency, so I'm not really worried that I'm gonna be losing my premier status. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Maybe we ought to hyphenate your last name to Dollar Ewan or something like that. Um, well, we have a few minutes for questions, and then we'll conclude, and there'll be a reception uh, right down, down the hall. So uh, we'll take uh, maybe two or three questions. Larry? Yeah, yeah bring the microphone down. Also, please, uh, again, uh, give your name and affiliation. Uh, Larry White, George Mason University. Could any of you uh, talk about the banking system in China? Are the banks insolvent, especially the big state-owned banks, and will there be a crash? Uh, let me go first, since I probably have the oldest information. So remember that in 1999, uh, there was a bailout of banks in China. It cost about $300 billion, roughly. Um, the bill, according to one estimate I read currently, is 10 times that. That the amount of cleanup that will be needed may be as much as $3 trillion. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, when I published that estimate as uh, something I had read from somewhere else, someone who's just got a book coming out sent me an email saying, no, it's much bigger than that. So I think one of the strange things about dealing with this topic is, you don't know what the losses are in the banks in China until they recognize them. So there are these back-of-the-envelope calculations on how big the losses are, um, and there's a wide range of opinion. But the path of least resistance is just inflate uh, those losses away, because if you inflate, then the bank's loans start looking good. And then you don't have to spend as much in bailouts, because they're going to need a lot of resources to bail out their pension system which is also insolvent. So um, I think that that's why I think long-term, the, the best bet is uh, for inflation because both the non-performing loans and the pension liabilities are so large. Chinese people really don't like inflation, so I'm kind of skeptical they're gonna choose that out. But what can you do? Well, my sense, Charlie, is that the, you know, the big four state-owned banks have 50% of the market approximately, and I actually think they're in reasonably good shape. I, I meant, I was talking about all of the debt, not yeah. just the, not no, no. Just the formal debt. No, they, there's definitely gonna be, there's a lot of bad debt in China that's gonna have to be recognized, and. Uh, the, you know, they're going to have to deal with that. The, but the question was about the banking system. The big four banks are in relatively good shape. Uh, and then there's, and that sounds nice, but then there's a large number of city-owned commercial banks, kind of locally government-owned banks uh, that are, each one is a small part of the market, but together, you know, the, the next 30 on the list have maybe 30% of banking assets. And so that's that's not a joke, and they seem to be in much much worse condition. So you're probably going to see efforts to increase the capitalization of those banks. If they're smart, this is where they'll open some of that up to foreign investors who will be cautious, but there will be foreign investors you know, who probably would be interested to pay something uh, in order to get into that Chinese market. Thank you. Just two quick comments. Um, uh, first of all, uh, many years ago, Bob Mandel wrote on the internationalization of currencies that the top currency belongs to the top uh, to the top military power. 
the first, since the uh, Second World War, it was the U.S. Before the uh, Second World War, it was the U.K. And I think that that's something that's borne out that nobody's mentioned. But second point, uh, mainly to Edward, uh, is the following. It, has, the, um, has the Japanese currency really become an international currency, or has it become an interna uh, regional currency? And here's what I mean. Uh, before the onset of the euro, there was great expectations that the euro would become a major international currency. Well, if you look at the share of euro, for example, in foreign exchange reserves, I believe it's about 22% now, something like that, with the U.S. about 65%. Before the onset of the euro, the combined share of the Deutschmark, the yen, and the Netherlands guilder was about 22%. So what the Deutschmark essentially done has replaced those three currencies, mainly as, as regional currencies. And if you look at the, um, the in Asia, uh, back in the 80s, as you well know, in the 1990s, there was great expectations of the internationalization of the Japanese yen. Well, that's come down, and what has happened is that the Japanese yuan has essentially taken the place, and the two combined, uh, combined the two currencies combined for the share that the yen had in the early 1990s. So there doesn't seem to have been much of an internationalization of currencies in uh, both Asia and Europe as much as a regionalization. Thank you. So one point is that uh, initially the um, share of the euro, uh, after the euro was created in the first um, seven to eight years after its creation, the share of the euro and global FX reserves actually went up to 28% before it started falling again um, because it reached the limits in terms of um, the depth of European financial markets. And I think the reality is that we are left with the dollar being the ultimate uh, safe haven. And what we learned after the financial crisis was that um, perhaps having the one dominant global reserve currency is what got us to where we are, but given where we are, it turned out having one currency that the world could trust in, where you could provide that currency in basically uh, infinitely elastic uh, uh, manner, um, actually was what led to the value of that currency being sustained. I mean, the uh, financial crisis got started here. But other than the Japanese yen, the US dollar appreciated against every other currency in the world. To your point about regionalization, certainly I think um, the fragmentation of the international monetary system continues in the sense that the dollar remains dominant. The euro has, uh, uh, I think, a pretty good hold on the second place, but there is a very substantial rejiggering of what I should really characterize as the third-tier currencies. Even if one takes the Japanese yen's relatively modest share of international financial transactions or global FX reserves, or the same is true of the Swiss franc, the two of them share a characteristic which I'm not sure they really want, which is that of a safe haven. Anytime there is trouble in Asia or in Europe or around the world, these are currencies that international investors turn to, uh, much to the dismay of the Swiss and the Japanese. And this is where I think there is a very significant difference that one has to draw in the case of the renminbi, that every other currency um, had with it this inst uh, institutional framework behind it. 
Um, Switzerland did not have much military power. Japan did not have much military power uh, in the post-war period when the Japanese yen started becoming much more prominent. Germany did not have a great deal of military power. So certainly military power is important, but I think in the world we live in, economic power is probably far more important, and that I think is what will guide the RMB to becoming a more important international currency in the narrow way I defined it, but not as a safe haven currency without the institutional support. If I can just interject one thing. I mean, it, having had, I think, four courses from Ron McKinnon when I was at Stanford, one of the things that was drummed into my head was that what makes a currency influential is not just the, uh, the balances that central banks choose to hold, but also how much of private sector transactions are denominated in that currency. And one of the things that's striking about the U.S. dollar is that even countries, when they're not trading with the United States, denominate their transactions often in the dollar. Even, let's say, Asian transactions between Japan and uh, Thailand are often denominated in dollars. So I'm not sure. I think that's a, that's a measure which, which we should all be paying attention to. How big is the yuan as a currency of denomination? Okay, I, I see the time is getting uh, late, so I want to just finish up uh, quickly, and then we'll go to the reception. Uh, and the speakers will be at the reception, so if you want to corner them and ask them a question, uh, I'm sure they'd be <coughs> delighted to talk. Uh, I just want to start by thanking everybody for coming, and also the speakers for an excellent job. Uh, these conferences take uh, about a year to plan in advance, uh, so uh, I appreciate everybody's help. Uh, Kevin Warsh, in his remarks this morning, said, quote, we should resist allowing the public, the policy debate to be small or push aside ideas which depart from the prevailing consensus. So uh, that's sort of the spirit that we have these conferences and a lot of Cato's work is to expand the parameters of the debate uh, away from just conventional thinking and think a little bit outside the box about uh, how to improve the monetary system, institu other institutions, and so on. And the papers from these conferences uh, are published annually in the Cato Journal. So the papers from this conference will be in the uh, spring-summer issue of the Cato Journal. Uh, I'd like to especially thank, again, the George Edward Durrell Foundation for their longtime support. And also, uh, many people on the Cato staff have helped, uh, uh, especially uh, Kiana Graham, uh, in our conference department, Lydia Mashburn, uh, who's the managing director of our Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And our research assistant, Tyler uh, Wordy, helped uh, a, a great deal as well. Uh, Andy Davis and Catherine uh, Chacon uh, and our crack marketing department, Bob Garber and Brandy Dunn, deserve credit, as do uh, John Myers and May Macklid, who uh, are in our art department and uh, did a very nice job designing the materials. Uh, I hope to see you again next year. Uh, meanwhile, please keep tuned in uh, for many events we have here at Cato and also at the uh, Monetary Center, uh, which John Allison, uh, Cato's former CEO and now chairman uh, of the center, uh, was instrumental in establishing. Thanks, John. He's still here uh, someplace. Uh, and uh, now we can head on to the reception and uh, have a safe trip home. Thank you.